Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Ladies and gentlemen, Terry Gilliam. Thank you. Hi, <laughs> right, man. How you doing? You're there, I think. Okay. Oh. Hello, Terry. That, those clips were just a little bit better than the uh, obituary variety wrote <laughs> when I died a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> how, did, how did that feel? <laughs> well, luckily I had been uh, resurrected by the time I realized <laughs> I had been... Uh, Killed by Variety. I don't know how many people saw that, but somebody at Variety made the mistake of pushing a button, and there it was. Uh, what does it say? Monty Python's Terry Gilliam, director of Brazil, dies at XXX. <laughs> and what was weird about that was that the day before was the XXX anniversary of Brazil in America, the 30th anniversary. Right. But I had already been uh, reborn by the time I found out I, I had died. And, and, and Wikipedia, Jimmy Whale of Wikipedia sent me uh, the log of, you know, somebody had written in that I was dead. So Wikipedia said, Gilliam dead. And within a minute or two, the Wikipedia team had resurrected me. And then uh, five minutes later, I was dead again by somebody else. <laughs> And they resurrected me again. And I said, and then I put on my Facebook page, final score, TG2, JC1. Weird, there's not many people who have experienced that. I suppose you and the Queen, Terry. (laughs) And and their their obituary was really shitty, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, I said, they had, they had rubbished my films in their reviews, and now they're rubbishing me after I'm dead. There's another thing, just before we get into this... No, I this is great, Terry. It's very relaxing. Yeah. What? You carry on, yeah. Can I? What do you got? Well, I've got this piece of paper, because today, uh, my daughter Holly sent me this. I don't know if you've seen it. 
that there's a group called E-Bible Fellowship. Uh, and today they have announced the world is going to end. Today. So um, it's really nice company to be in for the, for the last days. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Terry, we, we, we're going to explore your life as, as a creative individual. And through the auspices of this, this memoir, autobiography, pre-posthumous memoir, as you called it, with, have you seen this, with me, me, me written all around it? It's terrific. It's sort of a visual treat as well as a literary treat. On page six, and I promise you I did get further, I really <laughs> did, but on page six, sorry, I got to that age where you've got to take your glasses off to read it, um, you write, um, there is, there's a living creature... You're talking about being on the farm and seeing animals die and stuff. There's a, and there's a picture of you on a, on a pig. There you go. Terry's <laughs> riding a pig. And this is when he's a kid. He's very young. And he writes in this, there's a living creature, there's a dead creature, and there's a full creature, slightly up, higher up, the food train. This is knowledge <laughs> that has served me very well creatively. <laughs> no, I think there's... But it's right, there's something about... Growing up in the countryside, Sunday afternoons or Sunday late morning before lunch was you'd go and a chicken would die that day for lunch. And there was nothing more exciting as a kid to watch a living animal have its head chopped off and then headless it would run around in the yard for a, a minute or so. I mean, it was like miraculous. Sort of an amazing thing. Yeah, and, it, and I, it just, I think it's always stuck with me that idea of the nearness of death and the amazingness of life without a head. <laughs> You're halfway there. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but, but was that time living in the countryside before you moved to L.A. when you were 12, was, was that a time when sort of Terry Gilliam, the creative, was, was fully formed with those, those experiences? I don't know, it was more like Terry Gilliam... The, the, the playing around, pissing around, having fun. You haven't changed kind of much. Guy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, was, a, but the, the going to the church, getting involved yeah. in the Bible, loving the Brothers Grimm, yeah. the Grimm fairy tales, all that sort of stuff, that all happened at quite an early stage, those inputs. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because we didn't have a television. We had radio. That was our communication without the outside world, in a sense. And I mean, we lived in the country on a dirt road, swamp across the street, uh, some cornfields over there, a forest behind us. What more did you want, really? It was, it was wonderful. And, but the radio was what intrigued me because there, uh, there was Let's Pretend, which was kind of Grimm's fairy tales and fairy tales. There was The Fat Man, which was uh, about a terrible c- character who boomed the lumber in. He was a detective. <laughs> there was uh, a Catholic quarterback, uh, another radio show. But this whole world of radio was wonderful because there were no images. Mm. So I, I think my whole visual sense came from having to invent the faces, the costumes, the locations, the sets. And I think it, it's, an, it's a very important way of developing the muscles of imagination. Uh, and in a strange way, it, it's followed in a sense that when I make a film and I've got a huge idea but the budget is that big and how you make that in that becomes 
very creative because you've got to be really sharp to find your way around these limitations. And I kind of think, you know, limitations are kind of things that make bombs, grenades work really well. You, if you've got a bunch of gunpowder, you go bang, nothing. But you wrap it in hard metal and then you've got an explosion. And I think it's been like that with all, all the work I've done, whether it's animation or uh -huh. cutouts, because it, it's about the limitations that has forced me to use my imagination as opposed to using my memory of other people who've done great things and I have stolen and copied from them. Without wishing to sort of push you down the road of grumpy old man, do you think sort of kids nowadays are blighted by health and safety and being fed entertainment and information and all the rest of it the whole time? They don't have the opportunities yeah. to discover their imagination in the way that you did. Yeah, and I think grumpy old men are blighted by that as well. <laughs> I want to be able to take my own life in my own hands. <laughs> but I, I think there's, I don't know, there's so much available now. I think maybe that's the problem. There is just infinite amount of things out there. YouTube, right. whatever. You can play, you can do all this. And it's very hard to focus. I think there's an advantage of having less. Well, let's go back to the BBC and Python. There was the BBC One, BBC One Two, and ITV. Right. The choice was three if you, went watch, you were watching television. And you had a choice of three. Now, now we have a choice of, of a thousand. So where do we focus it all? Where does, actually, this goes back to my youth as well. Community, where is it now? We're so atomized because of everything being there. And we all have millions and millions of choices, which I just want to know. I want a good cappuccino. I don't want cappuccino with mocha and, 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 and walnut flavoring and some sesame seeds on top just served at that temperature. I want a cappuccino. I don't want choice. So it's simple things. And uh, I think that's it. So if you're young and you're inundated also because, well, I, I'll have to, Harry, uh, uh, our son, when he was 12, we live at Highgate. It's a rather decent place to live. Shops about, <laughs> <laughs> about 100 meters down the road. And, you know, he was actually nervous to go out because he was going to be raped, mugged, you know, all sorts of things were going to happen. I said, it's not true, Harry. If you're really, really unlucky in life, maybe... It, one thing will happen to you in the course of your entire life. And yet, the 24 hours news pouring this in, I think it just, well, it, it's, what, it's successful. It creates fear in everybody. And, and every government I know loves a terrified populace. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did moving to L.A. affect you? Well, L.A. was odd because we left Minnesota and we got in the car uh, my parents, three children, and my grandmother, and all squeezed in, towing a trailer across America, heading west. And I, at that point, I thought California was going to be cowboys and Indians. It's what I'd seen on movies. It was clear. It was uh, an open space. It was free from snow and mosquitoes and all the things that made life in Minnesota difficult. Um, and we got there, and of course, it wasn't anything like that, because we moved into a house in Panorama City, which is in the heart of the San Fernando Valley. There is no panorama. Uh, <laughs> but there it was. Uh, and it had just been built by Henry Kaiser of Kaiser Aluminium, or aluminum in America. And for those of you who've seen uh, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson... You know, Jack Nicholson drives out into the valley. It's all oak, I mean, uh, orange groves. It's just beautiful. And that's what it was up until the year we moved there. And the year before, they chopped it all down and built identical houses everywhere. 
And, and that was a bit of a shock. That, that was not the California I saw in the movies. But the movies were made around us. There were different places. There's a place called Stony Point that was some, uh, I don't know, from our house, 20 minutes drive. And a lot of the old uh, TV westerns were shot there. So you could actually go and climb around and fall and do all the things you do in, in westerns on the actual location, which was really exciting. Did, so so you, you start sending your cartoons in to help, and eventually you, you get a gig there. Yeah. You, you, you're working on help. And then John Cleese comes over to New York as part of a, a reinvention of the Footlights, yes. the Cambridge Footlights. You see him and invite him to come in and do an animation with you. It wasn't, it's, it's called Fumetti, Fumetti, which is like, it's basically like doing a cartoon with all the different cartoon frames, except it's live action. It's photographs. People speak with balloons. That's what the, the fumetti is, a puff of smoke yeah. in Italian. Oh, sorry. Uh, and, and this is what thing Help was doing. Harvey had invented this. And it, was, it was fantastic. In fact, it was kind of how I learned to make movies, because you need actors, costumes, sets, locations, all that. So yeah. I was on the lookout as my job of assistant editor, looking for cheap actors. We could pay as much as $15 a day. Um, and, and there was Cambridge Footlights. Uh, uh, and it was called, well, I can't remember what it was called. They looked cheap, you thought? Yeah, well, there was Bill Hardy, there was John, there was Graham Chapman, uh, David Hatch, who went on to be BBC One, right. uh, running the show, um, and Tim Brooke Taylor. And, of course, John, as always, stands out from the crowd, and... I asked him if he would be in this fumetti that my roommate at the time had written. And, and that was the beginning of this relationship. What was also interesting is aside, the story was about a man who falls in love and I believe has sexual congress with his daughter's Barbie doll. <laughs> a blonde Barbie doll. Now, I don't want to say anything about John's four wives, but... <laughs> so... We'll leave it there. <laughs> there is a little bit of niggle among the Pythons, I think it's fair to say. Um, you come over to Britain. You don't want to be in the war. You come over to Britain. You want to get out, don't have to enter Vietnam. You, you, see, you, you, you hook up with Cleese. He points you in the direction of another bunch of people doing something for the BBC. No, it's actually, wasn't it Thames TV? Was it Thames? I think it was Thames. Uh, yeah, it was. It was, it was Mike Palin, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, David Jason as well. Yeah. We're doing uh, Do Not Adjust Your Set. I, okay, absolutely. No, is yep. that correct? It's it, perfect. I, wasn't, okay. I, I was going to say I wasn't alive, but I think I was, unfortunately. <laughs> and they were doing children's television and getting away with murder. It was wonderful. And, and I was still, at that point, still in magazine work. I was art director of a thing called The Londoner. I was doing cartoons to make a living. And I had said, John, I want to get out of this and he introduced me. Humphrey Barclay was producing it, who went on yep. to produce uh, uh, We Have Ways of Making You Laugh and many, many things. Uh, and Humphrey was an amateur cartoonist, and I brought all my stuff there. And he, I had some written sketches and then the cartoons, and he really liked the cartoons, and I think that's why he bought one of the written sketches and forced on those other people, uh, Mike, Terry, and Eric, who were the writers and performers. And that was the beginning of the connection. Um, and it led... Well, what is it? No, it led... 
it was, it was one of those things. I arrived, and I, at that point, was wearing a big, long, shaggy sheepskin coat that I'd painted the big sun on. I was very <laughs> exotic-looking, apparently. Uh, and Eric has always been the one who connects us with the glamorous world, the world outside of Python. And, uh, and I apparently looked like that to him. Uh, Mike and Terry, of course, were huddled in the back in a little, with their little nasty little rodental teeth. <laughs> they hated me. <laughs> they're very territorial. Uh, but, uh, and, and that was my sort of beginning of the whole thing. In, in, in the end, that, the funny thing about it is that Mike, Terry, and I are the closest in the group. Um, but it, it, it started you know, di- with difficulty. But we did that, and, and that led to another show that Humphrey Barclay produced that Frank Muir was doing right. called uh, We Have Ways of Making You Laugh. And they brought me on as um, the resident cartoonist. And I would sit there and draw uh, sketches of the, the guests before they came out. And, um, and uh, one week, Dick Vosborough, who had, uh, was one of the writers and performers on the show, he had collected for several months Jimmy Young's uh, pun-filled links in the songs uh, when he was a DJ uh, on, the, on the radio. And they were terrible puns. <laughs> but Dick had got three months of this stuff, and they didn't know what to do with it. And I said, well, let me make an animated film. And... And they foolishly thought I knew how to do animated films. Um, I guess this American, you know, bravado uh, just floored them. So they let me do an animated something about this. And I had two weeks, and I think it was 400 quid maybe, something to do that. And the only way I could do it was cutting out things. I cut out pictures of Jimmy Young, put his foot in his mouth, did all sorts of silliness. And nobody had seen that kind of cut-out animation in England. I mean... There were people in America, Stan Vanderbeek and other people who had been doing that kind of work, but it hadn't crossed the water. Right. And suddenly on television, overnight, I was an animator because they were so surprised. Marty Feldman then got me to do some on his show. And then when we went back for the next series of Do Not Adjust Your Set, I did more longer animated pieces. And so then I was really part of that group, which which um, teamed up with uh, John and Graham and became, what, what's the group? Uh, oh. Do not the nine o'clock news. We became that, didn't we? And then you became Monty Python. Oh, then we became Monty That's Python and afterwards. Was. That was it, how it worked. Did, how did it feel? How does it feel, Terry, that you, you had these other guys, Oxbridge, Erudite, you were the, uh, even in that obituary that the variety said, the only American member of Monty Python. Yeah. 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 Did you, did you, did it feel awkward? Did you feel one down? Was, did, you, did you struggle to find a place? Or did you feel that you were the outsider? There's, it's nice being the outsider, to be but honest. you did feel like that? Yeah, to that extent. I mean, but I, what amazed me is how our minds worked very similarly. I mean, me from 6,000 miles away. But I, I'd always been an Anglophile. I'd love eating comedies. I love the goons, all that. And suddenly... For me, it was like coming to this country and discovering the audience that I couldn't find in America. Uh-huh. The English got what I was doing. But it was different because their, theirs was verbal. They were great performers. And I was this, this, this creature that made these things. It moved and banged and feet came down. Um, but it seemed to be... The balance worked out. I mean, I, even now... That's why no Pythons have been invited tonight. Because if they're present... 
my vocabulary shrinks to eat nothing. <laughs> I, I'm intimidated even to try to put words together. There's something about them that's still they intimidate a power. It's, it's very weird because they are so good verbally, so quick and verbally, and I bang around the place. I eventually get to the point. Uh, but there's a precision there that comes from that, which is just brilliant. But it, so in the shows, you know, they would be doing that. But the way it worked, we would all gather. Everybody would, in their different groupings, or Eric had his own, or me and my own, would prepare a lot of stuff. They would put them all together and read it. And um, I think my function was really clear very, very soon because the reading out was always a political moment because is this going to get through or is that going to... So it was, which, do we read this before that one? It was, you could feel... particularly John was very good at trying to strategize when to put his sketch forward (laughs) Uh, and everybody would laugh or not laugh and then it would go in the good pile the mid pile or the bad pile but I was the one who just laughed innocently because I didn't have anything to I didn't have a political stance on it it was funny I laughed and I laughed loudly so I think that that became part of my job in all of that because they didn't understand what I did you like the canary down the mine what? You're like the canary down the mine. There's a bit of that. Yeah. Was oh, he laughed. That. That's in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Gilliam found it funny. Well, then anybody will find it funny. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be educated to find it funny. We'll put that in. <laughs> did, you, did you... I mean, it's always odd in hindsight, isn't it? When I was just introducing you, I said that you were probably one of the most successful visual artists of the 20th century in terms of the, amount, the, the reach of your work and the connection it made with people. I mean, hundreds of millions of people yeah, quite yeah. literally seen what you've done. And, of course, what the Pythons have done. and you with Damien Hirsch, listen. Yeah. Did, you have, did you have any inkling at the time what you were doing was important? That was the great thing about what we were allowed to do. It was about six people entertaining themselves, making ourselves laugh, and hopefully others would. That was it. We never talked about the audience or who we're going for. Was it funny? The six of us were the sole arbiters of what was funny or wasn't. And the great thing about it, the shows are very uneven. I mean, there's a lot of crap in there, but, but that's great. They don't all have to be 100% brilliant, uh, but there's always you know, enough. Uh, the large majority is fantastic, and it works. And, and, and we were given the freedom at the BBC at that point. Uh, okay, here's seven shows. You know, do something, and if it works, you know, maybe we'll do some more. So... That was it. They went out. The BBC, the jaws, the BBC dropped because they had no idea what this stuff was. They sold it as a circus. Old ladies arrived, not like the ones we always use in there, but they were real <laughs> old ladies. And, and there were no tigers or, or baboons or anything. Uh, but it, it just caught on, and it caught on quite quickly. I think, I think, it was, I think the fourth show... They pulled it off for the Horse of the Year show. Yeah, that was great because clearly that was much more important and there was still some (laughs) doubt of whether Python could maintain another couple of shows. But the great thing was right in the middle of the Horse of um, the Year show and they're they're doing some dressage and the music they're playing is ah, yum, da 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 So we, we got even in there. It was really quite funny. So there was clearly one of these gods up there was looking after us. Do you know yeah. what the thing uh, that I love most about your work, this common thread which runs through every single thing you've done, from your cartoons to your animation to your directing, is this passion for the human imagination. 
this, this refusal to believe that there is only one way of looking at the world, yeah. that there is this thing called magic. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I, I keep wanting to believe it exists. <laughs> I'm never sure. I get to do it in movies. Uh, and I actually look at my life and saying it's been magical. I mean, come on, how, I, I just, none of it makes sense to me. It's just this wonderful, bizarre uh, time we're put here. And I find uh, the media tends to drag us down, limit, control, push. And I don't want I, to... I, I'm not a fantasist. That's the one thing I think is different because it's about how you deal with... The two things are there, reality and fantasy, and it's the tension between the two. It's the struggle between the two that is what it's about. That's why somebody was asking me to talk about sci-fi films or fantasy films. They don't really interest me unless they're... At least a great chunk of it is grounded in reality. Try to unearth some truth or another. Yeah, Yeah. because it's a struggle here, and it's an interesting one. I mean, there's a line in Time Bandits when... Uh, all the, the time balance are being taken up with the supreme being and um, Fidget is uh, left behind and, uh, and Fidget, no, Fidget is, gets into the group and he said, can't the boy come with us? Yep. And I think it's uh, Ralph Richardson's line is, no, he's got to stay here and carry on the fight. Now, it's not a fight that is ever won but it's a fight that has to be maintained, continued to keep the other, which seems to have more gravity and more power to drag us down into disbelief, pessimism, cynicism, and the other is this thing that just has to keep lifting us up. And it's, it's not, that's why I don't like fantasy in the sense that, oh, we can all go off to fairyland and, and do all this. Bullshit. No, it's... <laughs> It's this one in, 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 in Brazil when Jonathan, uh, Sam, is flying, trying to... No, he's, he's not flying, he's grabbing on the, the rope to go after Jill, and <laughs> Ian Holm, as the brick man, drags yeah. him back. And it's, that's the moment to me, is that's the moment. Uh, and um, I don't know. And, and I think and, and the other thing when watching that, when you see Jeliza Rhodes in Tideland, or, any, or Kevin in Time, it's the child, it's the innocent. Yes. Uh, who well, both, that's what you so believe in, the inner child. I, I think that's right. I mean, my joke is on Thailand. Uh, after all those years, I, I finally discovered the inner child, and it was a little girl. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that. And it's, you know, Hans Christian Andersen wrote the best fairy tale ever, The Emperor's New Clothes, right. where only the child can see the truth. It's, so it's children and it's lunatics like Robin and Fisher King uh, that see something, see beyond... The, 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 the noise, confusion, the mist that's put up there to say this is the way the world is and this is all that's possible and your life in it is fucked. <laughs> and, yeah. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. It's interesting to know what... what what your state of mind was then and how you felt about yourself. Just doing a bit of quick mental arithmetic, you were around 40. It was 81 time bandits. Mm-hmm. So Python was behind you. And that, that had already become legendary. You had already had a new generation going back and watching those TV programs and those early films. Mm-hmm. And it had hit that status. It had become part of the canon already. And here you are. You've done Jabberwocky. Then you do time bandits. And it's huge. You're A-list. You can do anything. What's going on in your head? Now I can do what they don't want me to do. <laughs> it's, it's like perverseness is very important in life. If everybody's walking that way, walk this way. It's more interesting. You might find something new. Uh, and, and a lot of it, I do it for just perverse reasons. It's not the smartest thing to do. It's the perverse thing to do. And I was being offered, suddenly I was an A-list director right. after, after Time Bandits. And of course, I was being offered these big Hollywood movies. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do Brazil, which in fact I what, what tried... Did you, what did you turn down? Enemy Mine was one of them, which you've forgotten if you even saw it. But they spent a fortune on it. Um, and it was about... I can't, it was an alien, and, and it was a buddy movie, except at, at a certain point in the buddy movie, the alien turns out to be pregnant. So that was kind of interesting. It's kind of, it would have maybe been more successful right now when transgender, transsexuality is all in the news. But then it didn't work and it was a huge budget. And, and I was offered it. And I think, what, and this is how Brazil got made, because I turned down the big one to do this other one. But now I'd been crowned as an A-list uh, director, turning down the big one. This other one, maybe it's maybe we're wrong. Maybe it's really a big one. It's going to be great. And I, I teamed up with Arnon Milshan, who is an arms dealer and Israeli spy, uh, but very charming. And it's um, <laughs> and and we went to Cannes, and we were like two pirates running around the place, giggling and behaving not the way film serious producers and directors are supposed to behave. And we managed to somehow confuse two major studios, 20th Century Fox and Universal, their head men to fight to do the film. So we ended up with two studios doing the film, not just one. <laughs> and we did it. 
And then the fun really started. We made you Brazil. Re- you regretted that, did you? Must have done. Not for one moment. No, no. We made Brazil. 20th Century Fox had it for the world. It came out in Europe, and it got really interesting reviews. It was good. And then Universal... In America. In America. Put the big foot down on Why? it. I think what's weird is... Sid Scheinberg, who was my nemesis at that point, head of Universal, I think he really admired the film on so many levels, but yet it had this downer ending. You know, it wasn't a happy ending. And it had some confusing things in there, if we could just get rid of those. And that's really... Uh, he wanted me to make a more commercial film by changing the ending and doing other things. And I said, no, come on, Sid. Uh, we had a script here. We got people like De Niro in playing these... All these people came to do this film. I don't want to make another film. Ah, but more people will go to see it. But it won't be the film I or we made. And that was the point. He couldn't understand that. I think to make his life even more difficult, his wife, who was the Roy Scheider's wife in Jaws, really loved the film. (laughs) And Sid, being the head of this huge company, he felt he had corporate responsibility weighing down on him. And it became... It was actually probably one of the most enjoyable uh, six months of my life because it was the film was dead. It was not going to be released. They put an embargo on me even showing it anywhere in America, even to friends. But a variety of things happened, and one of them I had been to USC Film School, um, and it was like this, except rather than you, it was all film students out there, and I had we had been able to wangle me bringing a few audio, audiovisual uh, helps along. And I just brought the whole film along. Um, <laughs> basically, no, actually, that's not true. Not the I titles. Cut, I, I cut three minutes off the credits at the end. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it wasn't the complete film. It was just a, 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 <laughs> a clip. Um, and <laughs> that's being creative, right? Being creative. Yeah. And what was so funny, it was... My lawyer was on the phone to Universal's lawyer because here we're at USC Film School. Now, the problem with USC Film School is it's all financed by the studios. Uh It produces the directors of the future for the machine of Hollywood. And the head of production there, the one who's in charge of the projectors and all, refused to do it. He refused to turn the projectors. Yeah, he was not going to deal with that. He was not going to betray his finances. Uh, He took this on himself. My lawyer, while I'm talking to all these students about filmmaking and everything, I'm saying, watch what's going on. This is the reality of filmmaking, not about where the camera goes or the color of the the drapery. Um, It's this. So my lawyer is talking to the uh, lawyer at Universal whose name, and this is wonderful because it's Brazil. We have Mr. Kurtzman. We have Mr. Yeah, we have Mr. Helpman. And the lawyer's name was Mr. Middleman. (laughs) You, you, I mean, this is the point. You cannot make write up, this stuff. Yeah, nobody yeah. believed. His name is Mr. Middleman. <laughs> and all we were doing is Mr. Middleman finally agreed <laughs> that they would show my film clip. He didn't know how long it was. And, and yet the dean hid himself, the dean of students, hid himself in his office, kept the door shut, and wouldn't take the phone call. My, my lawyer said, oh, Mr. Middleman's trying to call the dean. The dean wouldn't take the call. And I'm sitting there talking to the students, and I said, and, and, and most of them got up and started banging on the dean's door, saying, take the call, take the call, take the call. It was 
wonderful. Uh, and as a result of that, there are some people there from the Los Angeles film critics, and all this is going on, and they uh, surreptitiously, serendipitously, illegally <laughs> uh, agreed to show the, the film that I was carrying around at private viewings in their homes around L.A. And now, a month later, uh, heads of Universal are in New York for the opening of Out of Africa, Meryl Streep, Robert Redford, everybody's there. It's the big do of the year. It's their film, the one that everything, that's going to make them big money that year. And they get an announcement in the middle of the ceremony that the L.A. critics had voted Best Picture Brazil, Best Director, this guy, Best Screenplay, Tom uh, Stoppard, Terry Gilliam, Charles McCune. And it was like wonderful. <laughs> there was no way they could deal with it. This is impossible. The LA critics had found in their bylaws that the film didn't actually have, have to be released in the cinema as long as it was made and out there available. And somehow, and, and they had done that. It was, it was wonderful. So they put it into the cinemas really quickly in New York and a couple of the other big cities. Now the problem was they didn't even have a poster. They had a Xerox copy, a <laughs> photocopy of what some drawing that was going to be a poster if ever the film was released. And that went up there. And it made real money in the big cities because the, this, this battle uh, but with the studio had been also... Uh, supported by a guy named Jack Matthews who was writing for the LA Times who kept the dialogue going between me and Sid Scheinberg even though Sid and I didn't speak at all. I would say something, Sid would react. I would react to Sid. But I was at least being funny. Sid was being really tedious and corporate. <laughs> so, so I'm winning. And, and we did another thing. I took out an ad in Variety, the one that just killed me a couple weeks ago. Um, and... And all the ads are basically big ads to say how much money we made that weekend. Mine was black-rimmed, like a, a funereal announcement, the death of something. And there in the middle of this blank page was a small thing. Dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil? Signed, Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Just really nice and simple, direct, man-to-man, uh, man uh, but very publicly. <laughs> and, and, and we were saying, we would ship any any serious journalist down to Mexico. We could show it in Mexico. So we'll take you across the border to Tijuana and show it there. Um, we're doing all of these, just having fun. And I went on ABC television because uh, a friend of mine, Joel Siegel, was, a, uh, was the film critic there. And it was the Maria Shriver show. Uh, it was Good Morning America. And it's one of the big national shows. And, and Maria... She was, you know, uh, at that point, uh, just about to be Mrs. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and the great thing, and this is, what, this is the wonderful part about the films I've made and the people I've worked with, is Bobby De Niro never did interviews then. He never went out. He just hated it. But he agreed to, to support the film and come on the show. And that was the, that was the thing that, that got me on the show, an interview with Bobby De Niro. So Maria's asking Bobby questions, and Bobby's going, yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And finally she turns to me and says, Now, Terry, I understand you're having problems with the studio. And I said, No, Maria, I'm not having problems with the studio. I'm having problems with one man. His name is Shit Sid Scheinberg, and he looks like this. And I had an 8 by 10 glossy. I rushed up to the camera and held it there for all of America to get a good close-up of Sid Scheinberg. Now, that kind of... I would say innocent behavior because it was naive 
It was innocent. It was naive. I didn't have an agent in Hollywood. I didn't have a career in Hollywood. I couldn't give a toss. It was the only film I was ever going to make, make in my life. So you just throw yourself out there and do it. And anyway, after all this, it goes out, and Universal now think they've got a hit on their hands, and they open it up in all sorts of non non places, little places around America. And Nobody had heard about the story because they didn't live in New York or L.A. or Boston or Chicago. And so nobody went. They didn't want to see a documentary about the South American country. Or <laughs> who cared? And, and so it was, it was a flop. <laughs> but the point is, it was out there. And once a film is out there, it will it's find an audience somewhere, somehow yeah. down the line. And it has, and it's the one that unfortunately will be engraved on my tombstone, I'm afraid. Okay, guys, so what we're going to do is, it's, it's, we're going to hand the floor, we're going to hand Terry over to you. So, um, let's start with a gentleman standing to my left, with your hand up now, and your question for Terry. Hi. Hi. I didn't realize I'd get to thank you for the way that you've cracked my reality and changed, widened my world, so thank you oh, for that with your Normally, stories, normally I have to apologize for that. <laughs> Thank no, you. <laughs> never apologize. Um, but I think one reason that your stories have touched me from seeing Time Bandits when I was eight, because I guess my parents were onto something, um, <laughs> it's as grounded in the characters. And I wondered if you could speak a bit about your uh, process of discovering or creating them. Because with imagination, you can do whatever you want. Right. So. Yeah. I, I, it is, I don't know. I don't have any... I don't know how I do what I do, and I don't actually sit down to try to work it out. I mean, in the case of Time Bandits, okay, I wanted to do a film. It was from a kid's point of view. I didn't think the kid could hold the whole film just on his own. So let's surround him with some people the same size. So we start, those are the way I work. <laughs> and, and then it becomes, and then, okay, and, and then it became the idea. It, first was, I remember, it was the idea of uh, create, stealing something and then running back in time before the crime was committed. So that seemed like a nice idea. And then, okay, and now we got these, these little guys there and, okay, why not have them working for God, help them in the business of creation? And the fact that heaven and all of its glory is boring and a life of crime is more interesting. So it all works with that. And then I hand it over to Mike Palin and he makes the characters wonderful. <laughs> It's how it works. <laughs> so you, you, I mean, because what we haven't talked about is collaboration. And yeah. any, any sort of creativity, whatever you are, even if you're a fine artist, it is yeah. about collaboration. Yeah. And you are quite specific about what you bring to the party, the visual, the imaginative. But you, yeah. you, you always work with great writers. Well, I have to because I'm not a very good writer. I mean, I can write situation. I can write the ideas. I, I can have ideas about the characters, but... I don't write good dialogue. It's very simple. And so I always work with people who can. And I love working. And I, I think that comes from, you know, once you're in a group like Python, and even though I was separate to some degree, it was always collaborative. And I love working with other people. And it's one reason I got bored with animation, because it's just me and the paper. And I love other people's ideas. I love... The, the, the need that I have to argue for why I want something. I've got to convince somebody else, which is very important, rather than just saying, I want it. Um, and so the whole process, and I, I love also 
And that's when the actors really become wonderful because you've spent a year or so writing it, preparing it, getting all everything ready, and you go to work, and now the actors come in, and I spend a lot of time choosing, hopefully, the right people. Uh, and then they come in with very different ideas about how to do a scene. And so the, the daily business of shooting becomes surprising all the time. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. You've got to be on your toes. It's not, it's not me just following my storyboards. It's an iterative okay, process. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and the thing, the process, it's, it's very organic in a sense. And then nature comes in and rains when it's supposed to be a sunny day. So everything is shifting it. So the, the whole process is alive. It doesn't mean it's fun. It, yeah. it, most of the time I'm screaming and tearing my hair out because it's not the way I want it. <laughs> but that's, but the, the point is to, and to surround yourself with people who are really good, who are opinionated, who, don't, who aren't yes-men. I watch so many filmmakers and see they're surrounded by yes-people. And no, I want people that argue with me that say, what are you doing? I mean, I, I remember the first time we were doing Time Bandits, I got myself in a corner, literally shooting into a corner, and a whole set is back there, and I couldn't quite make it work, and the prop guy came by, the prop guy, and he says, what are you doing, Terry? And he, prop guy, talking to a director like that, wait a minute, there's a hierarchy, <laughs> hier hierarchy here. No. But he said, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Well, just do that. I said, what? And basically, I said, get out of here. And then I said, I just didn't stop. He's absolutely right. And so, ever since then, I just listened to everybody, and... I'm not um, neurotic or insecure to reject all these ideas because ultimately I'm smart enough to know that I have the ultimate power of deciding yay or nay. And I, I keep saying to people, because uh, people think I'm an auteur. Uh, I'm not, I'm a filter. Yeah. Um, it's what I am. <laughs> that's all. The you ideas are. come from everybody. Yeah. And I get the credit or blame. That's my job. That's all. <laughs> Question on, on the right hand side. Yeah, now. Thanks. Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, do you do you uh, do you uh, know about zines and more modern comic books? Do you read them? And uh, would you ever think about making one? Because I'm sure we'd all love to read uh, it. No, I've kind of I've got, I've gotten away from it. It's so weird. The things I really wanted to do are now possible. Whether they're big, um, big. Um, sci-fi comic book films which I always want to do now I don't and it's the same with comic books I've kind of just drifted away uh, the comic I remember leaving America and uh, having been involved in comics and all and being in this country and there, wasn't, there weren't really comic books then I mean there was Beano and a few things and all my friends were now very famous people in America Robert Crumb Gilbert Shelton all those guys but then there were the French which I discovered when I came over here uh, Metal Irland Drouillet you know all of those guys but, but tell us about it I mean uh, uh, Alan Moore but then Alan Alan Moore came along because there was the French thing and then we moved into Frank Miller right. Alan Moore um, Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman and that's where I kind of stopped uh, in fact what's wonderful last night the BFI was having an auction and I bumped into a guy who I didn't know and he said my name is Dave Gibbons and Dave Gibbons was the cartoonist who drew Watchmen which at one point I was I spent time working on a script and everything yeah. and it was fantastic to meet somebody like Dave who is a genius so I love comic books and cartoonists but I I, I don't think I'll do one, really. Why, why not? I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, there's an audience for it. It's, it's, it's in your DNA. Because I'm, 
I'm, what are you I, doing, I, I, Terry? Well, you, you, well, <laughs> no. <laughs> Great. I'm sitting waiting on Don Quixote. I'm, I am wasting it's, it's my life. It says on his website, coming soon. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, is it Don Quixote can turn it into Godo? It's sort of something like okay. Quixote. Yeah. <laughs> waiting for Quixote. Well, we're look, we're looking for the... But no, I mean, I'm wasting my life, frankly, and I, <laughs> I, I, I hate you for asking that question. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much. Next question from that mic, please. Thank you. Fear and loving in Las Vegas is surely one of the most outrageously hilarious, provocative, subversive films out there. Nice. And it follows that there should be some fascinating stories about its creation. Could you share a bit about the experience of making that film? Well, yeah, it was, it was actually quite easy because it, it was set up in a way... I'd, I'd been asked to do Fear and Loathing for some years and I always walked away from it because I, I, mean, I loved the book. It's, it was a really important book in my life. And, and it, it didn't ever happen because I was always doing something else. And then I got this call that Alex Cox had just been fired uh, uh, from uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Johnny Depp and, and Benicio Del Toro were playing the leads. And I said, I'm in. I'm in, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you know Hunter Thompson at this stage? Yeah, you knew the guy. No, I went. Oh, I went to Hunter. I mean, oh, I mean yeah. no. If you want to see something really interesting, you want to. What you want? Hunter Thompson is a truly extraordinary character, um, but he had got to a point in his life around the time when we were doing the film where, you know, the world had moved on, but he still was waiting on the mountaintop for the, <laughs> the acolytes, and he was surrounded by acolytes. But he was a very prickly brilliant character and you'll find on YouTube you can see a thing where Alex Cox goes there with his uh, partner at the time who had written um, the script that I was handed first and it was all about the wave there's a the wave and there's a, which is a long monologue and Alex had decided to do it as a surfer in a cartoon and it's, it's painful to watch because you're watching a very smart guy Alex just sinking deeper and deeper into the swamp and Hunter's about to kill him. And Hunter throws him out. Hunter was, Hunter, Hunter was, even then, was a pretty scary guy. Alpha male. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Hunter was always, he loved playing that game. Right. He loved it. But you had to be fast on your feet with Hunter, which is good. I mean, that just keeps you on your toes. But that was a disaster. So now they have a script. They got two actors. So I said yes. And I got Tony Grizzoni on. And the two of us sat down and completely wrote a new script in eight days. Because we thought, this is gonzo writing. Gonzo yeah, filmmaking. Yeah. Just like the book. Eight days, and we separate, we go our ways, and we read it, and we call each other a day later saying, this is utter crap. This is terrible. So we spent two more days and fixed it. Anyway, but, it but it was really, it was like the book was there, and the book was the Bible. And so the, it's an editing job. You pull that out, you do that. And one of the things that had been in none of the previous scripts that had ever been written was the North Star Cafe scene where... Ellen Barkin is playing the waitress and Johnny and Benicio come in and it's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable, it's a really bad scene when Benicio <laughs> is threatening her, it's ugly and you're watching Johnny Hunter doing nothing, just being sheepish, it's a painful scene to watch and it's brilliant, but it's always been cut out because it's too painful, but we were in that position because of the two stars to say, let's go back to the book let's do what nobody else was doing and we did um, off we went to, to Vegas. Was, every day was kind of extraordinary because uh, we were trying to create the old Vegas. Um, I don't have any particular 
any particular things except... Well, you do. I, I think there, <coughs> is there not a very good story about... The hunter? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reminding me that yeah. way. Because we then get back after Vegas to uh, L.A. and we're shooting at the old Ambassador Hotel, which is, is supposed to be um, the... Um, the nightclub, what's it called? I can't remember. Where, where the Grateful Dead, are, or not the Grateful Dead, the Jefferson Airplane are playing. And it's a scene where Johnny, as Hunter, wanders through and it's, uh, he's got a sort of monologue over it. And he suddenly sees himself. We decided, and Hunter was going to be in the movie. We said, Hunter's there. This is one day he was on the set. You mentioned, was, you mentioned casting mistakes earlier, didn't you? I know. Yeah. <laughs> and this is typical. Hunter's on there and he's destroying the set. He's drawing attention. He's throwing bread rolls at me. Uh, his buddy, Harry Dean Stanton, is there. It's just chaos. And now we're in overtime. We've got all these extras. And now we've got, we've got to get Hunter. He's got to sit down. Johnny just has to walk by him. Johnny does a sort of double take. Hunter pays no attention to him. He sort of looks up at him and, and then goes back to it. He won't go to the table. He's this recalcitrant sheep that you know, the producer, Johnny, me, we're all like sheepdogs trying to muscle him in there. Hunter, Hunter, come on. And he said, no, I'm, I'm a journalist. I wouldn't be sitting in the middle of the satellite. I'm going to sign. You know, doing that. Uh, I wouldn't be there. No. And the producer, <laughs> Layla Nabulsi, besides being a Palestinian, was a woman. And she, um, she was Hunter's ex. And Hunter had given her the rights to the thing. So Layla was very clever. She understood Hunter really well. So he got the best-looking girl from the extras and put her on the table that Hunter's supposed to. The bait was there. And then Hunter was lured over. And he's there. And he's saying, now we're going. Now we're ready. Oh, everything, the band's playing music. Lights are going. And here's Johnny. And we're following. He's doing the thing. And he, gets, he does the double take. Hunter's too busy talking to the girl. And, okay. Let's do it again. Okay. <laughs> just like, it's a nightmare. He's doing everything to just bugger the scene up. Finally, we got one out of him. Uh, and he was like, Hunter, I don't ever want to see you again. Just go away. <laughs> but the scary thing about the film was when we finished it, of course, we wanted to show it to Hunter. I mean, Johnny and I just were, you know, he was a hero to us. And we kept setting up these screenings and we were terrified of it and every time the screening would be set up Hunter for some reason didn't make it some uh, problems all sorts and it turned out he was as terrified of seeing the film as we were of showing it to him <laughs> and in the end a friend of his in Aspen in a private screening room put it on and because Hunter always had people recording every historic moment in his life because he was the center of western history um, <laughs> as the lights come up Hunter's on the floor rolling around in hysterics and I, and I was like, we did it, we did it. We made him laugh. And that was great. Fantastic, <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> yep, on the right, shoot. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, I was just wondering, are there any more, more recent directors or actors whom you really respect and would have liked to collaborate with? Um... Actors or directors? Yeah. Well, let's start with Michael Fassbender. Yes. I've seen Steve Jobs. He's extraordinary. The real Steve Jobs has vanished from my visual memory. It's Michael Fassbender. He's extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's so many great actors out there. Uh, there's no question. But he at the moment, I think, and I think Tom Hardy is extraordinary. I think there's some really good... I mean, written right now has got 
really good connection. We've got those two guys. We've got Eddie Redmayne. We've got Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, it's a pretty good crowd. And it's a nice, uh, varied group of people. So there's all sorts of possibilities here. Um, I, I don't know. I don't spend much time doing thinking like that. I just think about whatever project I'm working on, who's right for the part. Well, talking um, of which, then. Just, just, oh. just, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just to hone that question. Don Quixote. Um, well, uh, we shouldn't. No. <laughs> I've given him a scotch. We're going to get it all. It's going to be no. Fine. You're not. You're, you're really not. Because the more I talk about it, the more I know it's not going to happen. The curse is real. I'm convinced. I mean, how much more can you do? Ready to shoot? I should be shooting now. You know, in May we were getting ready. Uh, prep was going to start at the beginning of June. In the middle of May, with John Hurt, with John Hurt playing Coyote, and John announces to me he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Now, I mean, it's John is my coyote in my head. I've been thinking about him for two years. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, we just had to have a long talk because I've been dragging my feet and there's no way at the moment that I can get him past the insurance doctors because he has, the part is an essential element. And the last time I had a go at Coyote, the essential element was carted off in a medical helicopter and the insurance company had to pay a fortune. So I've had 15 to... 15 million bucks, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. And, I, and so I've had to say no to John. And now I'm kind of flailing around, to be quite honest, about who to replace him because he... He's so... Uh, sorry, uh, he's a great actor. Yeah, and he's, it's in my head. I mean, I made the movie with John playing the part. And, this is, and so in a sense, I've got to you know, rewind that movie and write another movie in my head. So I don't know where it's going at the moment. Okay, that's a great answer. Okay, over here on the left-hand side. Oh, hello, thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for giving me such visual ways to look at the world. You. Um, you've taken me from looking at the life straight on to kind of looking at it slightly from the side, and it's much more interesting that mm. way. Right. Um, when you were promoting um, Dr. Parnassus when it came out, um, I heard that there was a bit of difficulty you had with the studio, especially in the States, surprise, mm. um, with your choice of how to promote that. Can you talk about that a little? I don't... I can't... I'm not sure it had any difficulty. I mean, they just didn't promote it. Well, you, have, <laughs> you had, you know, Johnny okay. Depp, okay. you had Ledger's last year. You're absolutely PR right. Okay. It's, it's Sony Classics is the company. Name the company. I will give you their address later. Um, Sony Classics really liked the film and they got it. The problem with Sony Classics, they really have no money to promote a film um, because I they're owned by Sony, and Sony's thinking really about the DVD sales down the line. The film is only just to get some awareness. So you've got Heath Ledger's last movie, Joined Up, Colin Farrell, Jude Law, blah, blah, blah. And it's a big film. And they, you need to promote it like a big film. You can't just say, oh, we're going to release it, we're going to show it a few little um, festivals and let word of mouth build. The general public knows that stinks. Something is wrong with it. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, the, in Italy, they promoted it like a big film with this star-studded cast. It made twice the money in Italy than it did in America. I mean, so that's not about the film. That's about the promotion and distribution. They put it into cinemas. There were sort of a couple black and white ads, small ones in the newspapers. I have so many friends who had came to L.A. They didn't even know it was there. So that is the real problem. And 
and you know it, it did well on DVD but it's about how you promote a film it was like when uh, okay Time Bandits uh, I did the poster it came to doing uh, TV ads for it and I said well let's do three different kinds three different kinds for three different audiences one for children Saturday morning one for the Saturday night uh, live crowd the Pythons and then just to, for a family audience and they said no no because it'll confuse people I said no the kids watch it on Saturday morning don't watch Saturday Night Live you know it goes on and that's what we did and it went out it went to number one it, it ran for uh, weeks but it's kind of interesting it's about the selling of film when we did was there, was there an issue with Parasis because of, because of the situation with Heath, Heath Ledger no, no. I mean, what happened with Heath, in a sense, because Batman came out before us, and Warren, Bro Warren Brothers, uh, <laughs> Warren Beatty and his brothers, um, uh, <laughs> Warner Brothers, were very good at selling Batman and the Joker being Heath's last film. It was absolutely brilliant. It was like we didn't exist. Right. And and I I, I don't know if it was, I'm sure it was conscious. I don't take it personally, but that's what. That's what happens. It's no holds barred. But they were very good at telling the world that that, that was the film that Heath died on. Um, it's, it's how you communicate when we did Fear and Loathing. One thing, it's a college audience film to start with. That's going to be your prime audience. And I discovered that um, Universal decided to release Fear and Loathing during the summer break. Because their thinking was, all the, all the college kids will be free. They can go to the movies. The point of releasing it to a college audience is while college is in, in term, in session. Because it's, 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 a, it's a, like a pressure cooker. Everybody's it's a ready-made community. Yeah. Yeah. One person sees it and says, wow, and whoop, overnight, everybody wants to see it. And this is universal. The head of uh, marketing makes these kind of decisions. You realize, these are really stupid people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... And, of course, Fear and Loathing did nothing in the box office. But it's alive and well, and the head of the marketing is long gone. Finally, over here on the left. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, it's just lovely to listen to you speak, and thank you so much for everything you've contributed. Um, it's really lovely to hear those kind of stories in terms of you starting, starting your career with the, with the BBC and, and going from kind of like, I'll do an animation, don't have a fucking clue how to do an animation, <laughs> but I'll do it anyway. Um, but I suppose my question is, like, you've kind of done every single element of the, of the film process in terms of kind of, I don't know, animating, visualising, um, producing, directing... Um, and even just just from like the physical battles that you have to go through to get your films produced, it's incredible. But I suppose, what do you define yourself as in this world where everything needs a definition? That's interesting. That, how do you see yourself? I don't know. A Renaissance man without the Medici's to finance my... <laughs> <laughs> But that's interesting. I mean, yeah. you are, you, you know, you're an artist, you're a comic yeah. actor, so, so, opera director, film director. Yeah. What, 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 what do you see yourself as? What's on your passport? Um, British citizen. Yeah. <laughs> that's on my passport. <laughs> I don't. I, I just put director down. As well. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to define myself because I'm not even sure who I am still. After all these years, I find every time I look in 
uh, uh, I, I walk down the street and look in a plate glass window and there's this fat guy with bad posture lumping around and he's 900 years old and that's me. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I don't want to define myself as that guy, so I'm not sure who I am. <laughs> I think we'll be sitting here in a year's time, Terry, and we'll be talking about Terry Gilliam, graphic novelist. Um, <laughs> but right now, we're talking about Terry Gilliam's fantastic uh, bi- biography, memoir, autobiography, uh, all about, it is all about me. It is also for sale in the foyer. All, of, all the copies have been signed uh, by Terry. It is, I have to say, a fantastic read, bizarre in many ways, never a boring page, many a fascinating image. He is, in my opinion, a great man. Please give Terry Gilliam a warm round of applause. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.